Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. Please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. We're back. Yep. Another Another chapter review. Another chapter review. Another episode. So today, here we go. The Journey of the Adoptive Self by Betty Jean Lifton, of course. And today's The Broken Narrative, Chapter 5. Again, love her writing. I I love her writing. I do too. I really... I'm really touched by her writing. So the beginning starts the narrative, obviously, where do you come from? Like everybody has their childhood narrative, right? Your story starts before you're even really born. And when you're not adopted, you may hear that story, how my parents met, how they loved me. And then I was born. And I used to tell Becker, you know, and he would ask me, you know, he was, I don't know, four or five, you know, we had a whole story because his he was late. He was yes. like six, seven days late. So my mom had scheduled to come visit after we assumed he was born and he had, wasn't born yet. So I always tell the story. We picked Nana up from the airport and, <laughs> you know, and he would always ask me like, tell me the story of my birth again. You know, she starts off, you know, the adopted child will keep asking, did I grow in your tummy, mommy, hoping to trip up and get another yes and have another story told. And with the biological kids, they just know the story and it grounds you is what she says. More than knowing the story, it makes you feel secure in who you are to know how you came into this world. And I think with adoptees, she kind of even got into a little bit where she says, you just kind of show up. Here's a tour of the house and here's your life. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. way she put it. It hit home, especially when I remembered telling Becker always the story of his birth, you know, and that it, it, I know, I don't think I ever thought about whether or not, I mean, I don't, I don't remember, but then connecting this, it, yeah, it, it just is always, it just, everything she says just is always, well, like, it makes oh, these yeah. connections later. Oh, yeah. Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, like mm-hmm. we often talk about, you know, oh, my, my life makes sense. Now. Things start to make sense. The, um, she said the one thing about broken or historical narratives, that I wrote down here about three that adoptees, I, this is something I never would have thought of. So the narratives can be broken by historical or personal events, such as war, divorce, death, or desertion, or by f- infertility and adoption. And we're talking about broken narratives when we talk about adoption, because everyone's narratives are broken. The adoptive parent's narrative is broken because they're unable to have a biological child to continue their family. The birth parent's narrative is broken when they're unable to keep the child who have continued their family line and the adopted child's narrative is broken when he or she is lifted out of her own genetic and historical family line to fix the break in the adoptive parents narrative. I thought that's just different. I I know. And I, I highlighted that too. And and then also the next line, which is because of the secrecy in the closed adoption system, the continuity of the adoptive parents narrative is made possible by the discontinuity of the child's. Of the child. So in order for them to have their story, they have to end ours. And she even went as far as to tell a story about the adoptee that came home and their parents couldn't have a baby. 
and they brought home one to kind of replace a dead baby, a baby that had died and he didn't work out. Yes. And they took him back. And then they adopted the little girl who then had to have the same name as the baby who died. And I know she felt like she was this replacement baby. I'm like, God, this is some. Well, taking back that still exists. I told you about that, that note of that known writer, the well-known writer woman that adopted two daughters from Ethiopia, two girls from sisters from Ethiopia. And then after like six months, gave them relinquished that adoption. And because of that relinquishment, they weren't even guaranteed to keep those daughters together, those girls together. So now they're in a new country, maybe not together. Right. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, and and so this is all more stuff. It's like, well, she did. How do adoptive parents really truly feel inside? You know, they tell the children, Oh, you're so chosen and wanted, but, is there a part of them that really doesn't feel that way? You know, the more I read, the more it, it, it hits me that way. You know, another thing that she talked about was she had a friend here that she, that went and lived on a native American reservation and they were, they, when they have children raised by someone else's children, they still tell the story of that it's very important in their culture of their tribes, who of what the their different tribes, their yes. clans. Even if, even in modern times, it's very important who your lineage is. And so you're raised very proud of who you are. And it's actually like a big thing. You're supposed to do that. And I don't know why we get the disconnect to not do that. I know. Well, I think it's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the adopters and the system. It does. And here's what she says in this, the telling as not telling in the closed adoption system. If you rear someone else's child, you tell him or he or she about how they entered the clan and very little about the clan from which they came. His identity is supposed to start from the moment he became part of your family and is expected to live as a child without a past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Adoptive parents in the closed system seem to think nothing of cutting their children off from the birth family's narrative, which means cutting them off from their biological and historical origins. In her wonderfully irreverent novel, In a Country of Mothers, A.M. Holmes, who I hope is going to be a guest here soon, has the adoptive protagonist tell her therapist how she was told she was adopted right after birth. I came home from the hospital and they said, hi, how are you? This, Yeah, that's what you're talking about. This is the house. This is the kitchen. This front hall will take you to your room. Oh, by the way, you're adopted, but don't think twice about it. (laughs) Let me give you a house tour. (laughs) You know, she also mentioned some old part of the problem back in the closed adoption era that we had was the books that people were reading too. Like oh God, that baby. chosen baby. That and just you, sounds, we just, we just interviewed somebody who talked about the chosen baby mm-hmm. and it's, I have to get a copy of this book to see it. Cause it sounds just awful what they talk about in there. The chosen baby story simplified a complex, powerful and emotional drama, which involved many families would alter their lives forever. So I'm, I'm just because she brings it up in here. I have to see this. I know. And then there's another line, no matter how adoptive parents today manage to find their babies, many are still giving them the same old mixed message. You are are ours, but you're not really ours. They still tend to be deliberately vague about the reason the mother gave up her baby. She was too poor. She was too young. She loved you too much to keep you. They tell the child that they're adopted, but they do not tell the child what they need to know about the tummy and the families 
from which they came and to which they still are biologically connected. Telling then is not really telling. Yeah. And, and she says people have well, good intentions, but they don't finish the narrative. They just tell half the story, even in the good. This is why it needs to really. Does be. she say they have good intentions though? Because well, she said, even in the, in the best of situations, they're trying to tell a story, but they stop. Yeah. Well, I just think about it. You know, I, I, I just keep thinking more and more about it and, and people's motivations and, you know, Nancy Vary, I talked about this. I'm sure BJ has talked about this, but if you're motivated to be a parent, then there are children in need. And why do you need to change their names and, and erase their whole lives? If it is about the being a parent, then, then that's one thing. But this desire to have a baby, I just can't help but think that that is coming from a good place. Yeah, that's it's that's, to complete their family, their needs. That's what um Nancy Berry did say. You have to be sure you're ready to be a parent. Yeah, not just have a baby. Right. I feel like the guardianship thing is the best way to go, but it's not the money way to go. So this is why things don't change. Right? Well, and there's a lot of other, you know, again, if the if the parent if the if the APs, the adoptive that hopeful adoptive parents or whatever are looking out for the best of the child, then, then why not go that route? If it really is about, you know, so it's just a lot of sticky. So the conversations we've been having in our house over the weekends <laughs> get kind of heavy. There's another section I thought, I mean, cause it's kind of a longer chapter than yeah. she normally does the replacement self, which I thought was interesting because she says at whatever age it occurs, the moment of telling, which is not really telling will be forever etched on the adopted child's soul. They may look the same after that, but they will never be the same again. They may say they're glad to have been chosen, but would rather have been born. So it's like, you're almost a changeling. Yes. I thought that was really. Yeah. And then I I wrote selfish. uh, (laughs) One mother spoke of being disappointed that her baby was not huggable. Even the food he liked as a child was different from her family's taste. I watched him grow like a plant whose name I had forgotten. I felt like I was putting nothing into him. I didn't know what he contained. There we go. There, there it is in black and white. What, <laughs> what came out of her mouth was all about her yeah, and what she was projecting and hoped that child would be not really who that child is. Gosh, and then like a plant. I mean, that's just awful language, you know? Yeah. I mean, not huggable. I wasn't huggable. That was a big thing for me. I was not the huggable baby. I was the push away baby. And, you know, it's kind of a joke in my family growing up, but I'm sure I wish my mom were alive to discuss it with her. Yeah. Because I'm sure there was a lot of pain in that. I wasn't that cuddly. Like, let's go hold. I was like, eh. you know, I and think I- my brother was like that after me. I think I was me. I, from what my mom says, I was an affectionate child, you know, in those early years, in those early years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did hear something. I don't, I'm going to go see what it is, but I put disturbing. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I know it's part. Oh, it's the one that you had already talked about. Uh, Ruth was named after her adoptive mother, stillborn baby girl. Her adopted brother, who had been named Paul after a stillborn boy, was given back to the agency oh, that's when he proved to be emotionally stable. Yeah, you you jumped ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it just because it bothered me so much. The whole giving it, that's, back. 
That is psychotic. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's psychotic. Yeah, to so name nice. your, your new babies after, not even your baby, a, a, the baby that you've, that's been relinquished into your care, you've now named after a, st- that is just psychotic. It's- I'm sorry. It's psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> this this morning I was on a group text with some people and one of my friends sent the like a funny Joan Crawford thing, you know, like ah and I was like, oh, don't get me started on Joan Crawford. <laughs> I sent the whole Georgia Tan stuff to them, but that you know, they these were non-adoptees and they're like, oh, tell us more about that. So I was telling them they're like, there's some sick stuff out there. I'm like, there is some sick stuff. Really sick. I mean, this it's is a just... whole gamut. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and this would be one of them. Cause that, I think that's why I jumped in. That, that bothered me after reading this chapter, it just sat with me all day. Like the heck I wouldn't even let, you know, when we first got Duchess, I think I've told you this, she had been returned to the pound several times, but we didn't know this, you know, and she was sitting there with all the pit bulls. And then we brought her home. She was eight months old and she was a busy dog and she started to eat the walls. And it's like, I wouldn't even think of taking Duchess back. No way. Like she was mine and we worked on it. And yeah, not <laughs> so in a, you, like you take yeah. a baby back. Come on, people. Or it's two like, sisters, you know, who came over from another country from, a, you know, whatever was going on in, in yeah. their country at that time. And yeah, people are. Yeah, that's not really wanting to be a parent. Like you said, that's wanting something that is an extension of yourself. Yes. Yes. Some deeper stuff there. I'd venture to say like, well, I I think most baby adoptions are in that realm, in that realm. Yeah. Yeah. It took me till this long and reading these books to really come to that conclusion. It never, none of this occurred to me before. Um, (laughs) I feel like we've had two lives. I know it's true. Uh, Here's the, the final bit about this is called the unborn self without concrete information about the circumstances of your birth, especially about the woman who gave you life. The adoptee often has the sense of not having been born at all. The amended birth certificate is a fake listing as it does the names of the adoptive parents rather than the birth parents. And the fact that the real birth certificate is sealed enforces the sense of non-existence. The adoptee feels alone in the world. Yeah. And we still can't get our birth certificates. Half of us. I'm I'm waiting. They cashed my check, but, but they haven't sent me the birth certificate. I'm like, I can't tell you all that state of Missouri. <laughs> I know. Oh, the, <laughs> uh, what, but what she BJ Lifton says, she calls it cosmic loneliness, cosmic loneliness. Yeah. I know. And she even puts it in italics because it, that's a very strong term. And at the end, adoption is a major cutoff. When you cut off the child's birth, parents, you cut off the child's birth. Yep. And and Daniel Stern says, you, he calls it the narrative point of origin. This key experience will lie buried in the child's psyche until the adoptee at whatever age is strong enough to claim it. And here we are. Here we are. (laughs) Better late than never. Better late than never. And the next chapter is chapter six called artificial self forbidden self. I'm sure more deep stuff to <laughs> more deep stuff. And next we'll have a wonderful guest who yes. is actually really kind of entrenched in this as well. It'll yes. Yes. Really good to talk to. Okay. See you soon. Uh, see you soon. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I talked about it for months and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. 
Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. Podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. Hi, I'm just going to break in here. As a friend of the podcast and a fellow Patreon, I want to join Louise and Sarah in thanking everyone who has reached out. Frankly, I've been astounded at the number of listeners from across the world who have shared their unique stories with our podcasters. I believe in the healing power of stories. As a Patreon, I've found such pleasure in supporting the podcast And in seeing how adoptees find their people, I know how much Louise and Sarah are moved by each Patreon support. Their immediate goal is to be able to air the podcast weekly rather than bi-weekly. Eventually, they would like to advocate for more effective ways of adopting children. If you would like to support this important work, either once or in an ongoing way, Simply go to patreon.com, then in the search bar, type adoption colon the making of me. Thank you all, each in your own way, for bringing us together. And now let's rejoin our hosts. Hi, here we are, another episode. Today's guest was somebody else that we met on Twitter that's happening a lot lately. And I reached out to him just because I really liked his Twitter feed and his intelligence and his calm demeanor in which he tweets. So having said that, meet Tony Corsnino. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. So we're going to kind of just jump right in. What is your adoption story or how do you want to tell your story to us? Well, I grew up as an only child. And I was always aware throughout my life of having been adopted. I can't really remember a moment when I was told. It just feels like it was, in that respect, a part of my identity from the, from the start. I didn't really think much about searching or knowing more about my ancestry and my roots and my origins until I was about early 20s, like 23, 24 or so. Where were you adopted? Where did you grow up? I was adopted in Birmingham, Alabama. So lived in Birmingham until the age of eight. My father was a real estate developer in Birmingham and moved us, my mother and me and the family dog to Northwest Florida when I was eight. Yeah. And so I grew up in Northwest Florida, went to college at Florida State University in North Florida, and then um, got married and moved up to the Boston area for graduate school. Yeah. And so then during the first couple of years of graduate school, I began to think in a way that I hadn't hadn't really before about the possibility of, of finding my mother. 
And were you close to your parents growing up, your adoptive parents? I was very, very close with both of them, but especially with my adoptive mother who loved me with a, you know, kind of white hot intensity. I always felt like I was the most important and valuable thing in her life and her entire existence. You know, it was something that as I got older, I began to become more self-conscious of. It was something that some people in my life sort of indicated to me that they had noticed as well, that that there's just seemed to be a, a real closeness uh, and almost, I wouldn't say desperation, but just a, just a real feeling of intense, yeah, uh, love, belonging, ownership, possession. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was quite a blow really when um, a couple of years before I started thinking about searching, we lost her. She died. I was, you know, 20 years old. You know, I was um, working through my studies in college and I don't have very, actually very, very clear or detailed or precise memories of all of those events. There was a lot of grief, sadness, and, and a fair amount of ugliness that happened between the various parts of my family after my mother passed. So I think that's when I think about my sense of myself and the way that I formed my identity growing up, it's important to me to keep in mind that I was my adopted mother's only child and and that that bond that we had was was extremely intense. That's a big loss at your, at that age too, for a son and a mom. And Sarah and I have boys in their twenties. That's a, that's big for for you. What you had to go through. It was, and I wasn't prepared to handle it like a grown up. So it was a situation in which I basically let other adults in my life take care of all of the arrangements, clearing out the house that she and I that she and I lived in. That was something that was done by other other people in my life. I had just found a couple of days ago a box of old photographs that that my mother's sister had saved and archived for me. And I think that she did that at around the time of, of my mom's passing. And that box is among the few tangible physical artifacts that I have of really any part of my childhood. And in part, you know, it was because it was it, it was because when she passed, I was very young and not thinking about how to tie up loose ends, what, what to do next. So yeah, a couple of years after that happened, when I was in graduate school up here in, uh, in Boston, I thought that it was time to, to think about searching. I didn't know what the resources were. I, I didn't know anything about, and in fact, I really didn't even investigate what the, the status of the laws governing adoption and birth records were in my state of adoption, Alabama. I just went online. You know, I think this was pre-Google. I may have used, what was it? Like Alta Vista or one of those other yeah. <laughs> search engines or whatever to find. Earthlink. <laughs> yeah, Earth, right. Um, something like that. And, you know, what I came across was the International Soundex Reunion Registry, the ISRR. For people who may not, not know, it's a voluntary registry in which adoptees and birth parents can register independently of each other if they seek contact with each other. And then the those those records are compared. And if there's a match, then the registry arranges to put to put adoptees and birth parents in contact with each other. So I, you know, created a file in SoundX reunion registry and nothing happened. So after briefly a brief kind of dalliance with searching, I uh, just didn't think about it again for a number of years until 
2007 happened. So I, I was I was doing this rather cursory searching at around 1999, 2000. In 2007, a couple of big things happened in my life. I um, I was diagnosed with cancer. That was probably the stimulus for my wife and myself to try to conceive a child, because all of a sudden there was this existential question of life and death looming over us. And so we did conceive a child that year. And then once I became a parent, the gears began to turn a little bit. And I began to think more about what I owed that, what I owed my child, in, in particular, obviously, what I owed them in, by way of family medical history or health history. But again, I didn't really act on any of, of, of these thoughts. It's quite common, I think, too. I, when that happens, we all have the, the gears start going, do, you know. Yep. Yes. Yeah, it seems to be your story repeated over and over again among adoptees that um, that having children is a stimulus that kind of gets gets things moving. A couple of years after the birth of our first child, we had a second. That was in 2011. And a couple of years after that in 2013, once again, I started thinking about what I owed them and decided that it was time to search again, assuming, you know, thinking that at this point, Online resources for searching might have gotten a bit more sophisticated. Some time had had passed. And I discovered when I went online, to my amazement, that maybe a year or so after I had originally and tentatively and half, almost half-heartedly tried searching, that the legislature in the state of Alabama had repealed its law that it had passed in 1990, sealing birth records from adoptees. So Alabama had been something of an outlier state in the broader history of adoption law in the United States, because even though state after state from the 40s through the 70s were passing laws that blocked adoptees from having access to their birth records, Alabama was one of the outliers with a small handful of other states. But then they, then that state also sealed its birth records to adoptees in 1990, but then in 2000, they repealed it. and. You know, that came as quite a shock to me because I'm sitting there wondering, kind of bashing myself in the head, asking myself, why didn't I know this? Why didn't I try to educate myself about this? I could have searched a lot earlier. I could have searched 13 years earlier than I did or gotten this, at least gotten this document. And, you know, it just turned out to be a completely straightforward process. It almost felt to me like like it was, it, it to me, it felt like being able to buy a drug that had been illegal for forever. Like all of a sudden marijuana, right? Instead of buying a joint legally, now I can I can purchase for $25 my original birth certificate from the you know the Department of Vital Records in Montgomery, Alabama. I think it's fascinating that Alabama is so progressive. I mean I'm from a state that still doesn't have that. So that's crazy. it is interesting the way adoption issues do kind of scramble, you know, familiar and conventional political divisions, I think. Mm-hmm. It is pretty interesting. And, and it's one of those topics that as a, uh, as a former academic, I'd love to see, you know, more work done on it, like, you know, a detailed history of why it is that things change in the way they did in some places and not in others. There's a lot but, about adoption that I wish they would do more research on, specifically how many one thing, private investigators are adoptees. How many alcoholics are adoptees? You know, there's a lot that I'd like to know. But. Yeah, right. So 
So I went ahead and filled out the application and sent and sent my check for $25 or whatever it was. And then a couple of months later, so that I had done that in like August of 2013. In November of 2013, I got this big envelope in the mail, you know, from Montgomery, Alabama. And um, I can't remember exactly how I felt when I held that unopened envelope in my hand, but certainly when I opened it and I pulled out this sheaf of documents you know, my original birth certificate, some of the initial adoption papers, and then the final decree of adoption, all bundled together with nothing at all redacted. When I was sitting there and looking at my original birth certificate, and I, and I beheld for the first time ever, my mom's name in her young sort of, you know, neat loopy cursive right there on the name field of the mother on, uh, on my original birth certificate. I just changed. I don't know. I don't know a better way to describe it, but I all of a sudden, um, really very suddenly realized that what I needed wasn't just to supply some information of value to my own children and, and to myself, right? Uh, health, his, health history, but I needed to, to know her if I could. So it wasn't even like I was sitting there and debating whether I wanted to reach out when I, when I, it was just something about seeing that name. So I ran over to my computer and sat down and, and Google searched her name. Her name is unique and no other records for anyone else popped up except records that pertain to her. And in particular, there was, there was one piece of information that was, that was really useful. Um, and, 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 and I mean, it, the circumstances are quite sad. During the same month that I had requested my birth certificate, her father, uh, my grandfather, died. And, you know, the funeral home had put up a kind of obituary page where you can leave messages and notes and expressions of condolences and things like that. And so the obituary stated, you know, all of his children, names of their children, and it was very easy then to start finding people. And... You know, I'd like to say that I deliberated carefully about how to proceed, having all of this identifying information, but I wasn't careful. I reopened my Facebook account, which I had basically abandoned a couple of years prior to that. And I found that two of his, sorry, two of her siblings had Facebook pages. And so I sent out direct messages to each of them. And from what I can remember, the first one was really kind of cagey and almost sneaky in its language. I think my my attitude was like, I think I'm, you know, I think I might know who you are, or I think that you you might you might recognize me. Uh, I think I might be your nephew. Not trying to stir the pot or anything. I was just very cagey, and and I hadn't really found found an authentic voice. I think for expressing for expressing what I was hoping to do. And in fact, I didn't get a response. Then I sent a message to my uncle, in which I was just much more open about it. Here's who I am. Uh, here's who I believe my mother is. And, and she wasn't on Facebook, your your mother? She was not. No. Huh. Here's who I think my mother is. And I I would love to be able to meet you or at least get to know you or talk to you if if you feel comfortable with doing that. And if you feel comfortable with sharing this information with her. And uh, my uncle replied um, very graciously. In fact, I think ultimately they both did. Both my aunt, who I had reached out to first, and then my uncle, and they both they were both quite gracious, and they said, "This we certainly know who you are. 
We are glad finally to hear from you. And um, we're going to be having a family Christmas get together next month. And we're going to sit down with your mother and we're going to uh, talk about what, what she'd like to do next. That's really incredible. Actually. I think it's <laughs> not everybody's experience. I think it's neat. Yeah. I, I want to come back to that because mm-hmm. I'm still struck by it. So then and this late, was how long ago? This was in 2013. Okay. Yeah. I was out of town on Christmas vacation with my family when I got an email. I got several emails from different people, but the one that I remember most clearly was from another of my mom's sisters who explained to me that she was the person who arranged for my mom to live in Birmingham, Alabama while she was pregnant with me. She came down from Pennsylvania. That's where um, she got pregnant with me. And her sister, who was doing volunteer work in Birmingham, was able to find a place for my mom to stay while she was pregnant with me. There is a mail, there is a street address on my original birth certificate. And when you run it in Google Maps, it just shows an empty field, um, which I found mysterious. But it turns out that it was, there was a farm there at one point. And my mom lived in a farmhouse and during, during my pregnancy. And, and uh, so, yeah. Oh, so I how got old was she? She was 21. Yeah. Um, she was, she was 21 when she gave birth to me. Yeah. And, and was she from Pennsylvania or did she just happen to be in Pennsylvania? The family was in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's where her parents lived. Yeah. She was, she was going to school at a small college in, in Pennsylvania. So yeah, she, uh, spent the remainder of her pregnancy in, in Alabama. So I got an email from her sister who had arranged that. And it was one of the things that just kind of made me weak in the knees was her, my, my, my aunt's remark that she was the first person to hold me in her arms uh, after I was born, you know, and that's just kind of like the, that's kind of like that, that one of those birth story facts that people who aren't adopted, you know, I'll, I'll probably hear so often that they become tired of it, mm-hmm. but here I am, you know, I'm, I'm uh I'm a 39 year old man and I'm hearing for the first time, my birth story. I'm hearing, you know, from uh, the the woman who held me in her arms for the first time. And that was a really, really, really powerful thing to hear. So it was a lovely letter that she wrote. And then at that point, and again, this, this was either Christmas day or the day after Christmas. So they made this decision to reach out to me, I think probably immediately after talking with, with my mom about, about all of about what happened. So, yeah. So then we started corresponding and emailing photos back and forth with, with your aunt, but not, not with your, your... Mom. with my aunt and then with, with my mom. Okay. Then, yeah, I think, uh, I think she emailed me first. I have all these message messages archived in uh, Gmail, but I actually haven't gone back recently and looked at the text of them, but yeah, she, uh, she and I started talking and we shared a, a, a lot of photos with each other and then made plans for an in-person reunion. Not to liken myself to a hero, but it just felt like that aspect of the, of the, you know, the stereotypical hero's journey. We had set a date to meet uh, in March of 2014. So I, you know, walk from my house over to the car rental place to rent a car to make this trip. And it's a 370 mile drive, just straight along US US 90, the Master and Pike to the New York State Thruway. And, you know, I'm just driving 
into an unknown future. I mean, you know, it was just, it, 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 um, it was, it, it felt like a, quite an extraordinary journey into the unknown, clearly. And the way we had arranged it was that I would go to her apartment first and meet with her one-to-one. And then we would, after an initial meeting, we would go to another of her sister's uh, home because it turns out that I have three of them who live in the same town, uh, my mom and two of her sisters. So that's what happened. I drove to my mom's apartment and, you know, I pushed a little buzzer and I was buzzed in. And, you know, that was an interesting sensation to be buzzed in by my mom, who I, you know, I've never seen in person. And then I knock on her door and there she is. And so, of course, we embrace and uh, we sit down and we just, um, I think, I think we just kind of looked through a couple of photo albums. I think that was how we, uh, you know, sort of started to converse and kind of get to know each other. Then we went over to uh, my aunt's house. And what I had done is I had made a lasagna, which this incredibly labor-intensive lasagna where you have to make the bechamel from scratch and you have to, you know, there's like three different kinds of ground meat and, you know, you have to cook the, the, the noodles in advance and layer everything carefully. And it's just such a pain in the butt to make. Sounds you know, delicious. Like a fancy lasagna <laughs> like this, but I wanted, I just wanted to be a, I just felt like I just yeah. wanted to be a good son and nephew. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. is that people pleasing thing going on with us? <laughs> right. Bring the lasagna to your <laughs> I wanted to make a good impression. I really yeah. just wanted to do that. Oh yeah. And, um, and so, yeah. So uh, after um, we sat on the couch together and talked for a little while and looked over some, some pictures and. Did you feel emotional? Very much. Yeah. 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 You know, so my mom has a very, she has a very warm, but placid affect, you know, very sweet, very loving, but also not demonstrative. So it wasn't the, it wasn't like we were both embracing each other tearfully and holding each other's hand. It wasn't like that. You know, she gave me a hug and then we just, I, it really kind of from the start sort of set the tone for how we are with each other, which is just very relaxed and just, just, a, you know, in a way, just a couple of grownups. And she must've given you the circumstances of your, of the relinquishment. Yes, she, she did. In fact, she had um, even prior to the meeting, she had told me a few things that she wanted to share with me about the circumstances of my relinquishment. So um, one thing that she had told me again, prior to our meeting was the name of my father. You know, and um, I think it's it's important to for me to point out that she describes the relinquishment as an entirely voluntary act, you know, not coerced in the sense of having authority figures demand or pressure her or threaten her into relinquishing, but that um, she owns the decision and regards herself as having had full agency over it. and. I'm I'm struck by your story because I I haven't met my biological mom because she passed away, but she had, I have letters from her with the same intent and was very strong about that. that. Right. So hearing you, I'm like, oh, that's just, your whole story is resonating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things, um, 
just to kind of break the reunion narrative here for a moment, one of the books that I think I had actually read this book even before, I read a lot. This is what I do to cope with just anything that that anything that I find um, confusing or difficult to manage or major or you know substantial in my life, I try to read about it. I mean, certainly when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was reading like mad about the kind of cancer that I had to get some sense of of what I could expect. And you know, I just this is how I comfort myself with trying to just reading. So I had read a number of, and I had never done anything like remotely like this before in my life. But I read a number of books about adoption, really mainly from the adoptees and birth mothers' points of view. I skimmed a little bit of, of The Primal Wound. That was that was a book that I came across early. It's kind of hard to escape when you, you know, Google adoption book <laughs> or anything like that. The Primal Wound is going to be one of the first things to come up. I also um, got acquainted with some of Betty Jean Lifton's writings. And, uh, and then another book that really, really hit me was Anne Fessler's book, The Girls Who Went Away, the um, you know, the hidden history of the women who surrendered children before Roe v. Wade. And so I had a lot of those narratives in my head because in that book, birth mothers repeatedly tell stories of having been coerced, of having, of wishing that they had had the resources and the uh, support to keep their child, but they were given really no option. They had no family support. They had no financial support. And then they went away to some of these these places that were, you know, that could range from feeling something like summer camp to prison, right? Yeah. So I had a lot, I had these narratives kind of lodged in my head. And and yeah, and then when I when I started talking with with my mom, I kind of understand stood respects in which her own story was somewhat similar to that. Uh, because if um you know, a, a, a pregnant woman making the decision to relinquish a child may do so in part because there are no family members who are able or willing to provide assistance. And, you know, so I think I could speculate and infer things about what kind of support maybe she did or didn't have in her own family. It's really, you know, that's that's pure speculation. But certainly I, I kind of had that question in my mind, like what would, when we think about the, what it is to say that, that a decision to relinquish is truly voluntary, right? Like, right. okay, well, what are the constraining factors that might have, that might've entered into that decision, even if it's important for, for the mother to say that it was a voluntary decision? Because it might've changed if there's certain factors were different. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But for her, that it was the right decision to make. Now, the other part of it, which is what happens in the future. So with these stories of relinquishment in Anne Fessler's book, a time and, and time again, birth mothers talk about how they always wanted to find their children again. Like the lost child, they wanted to find, to find them again. Um, so that for them, relinquishment wasn't something that they were willing to conceive of as a permanent severance as a permanent lifelong irrevocable event. And what I came to learn about my mom is that she certainly didn't think of severance in that way either. And I think that's important because, you know, I think the story that is often told about adoption, certainly in that period, is that, and it was, it was something that I, I think I just absorbed in my own childhood, which is that there was this, you know, there was this woman who gave birth to you, but 
you know, she wanted you to, she wanted you to have a, a better life in, in another family who could take care of you. And she wanted them to make you their own. Right. So this kind mm-hmm. of transfer of all of the roles and statuses of parenthood um, from, from the birth mother to the, to the adoptive parents. But that kind of notion of that notion of permanence, that's not something that she had because she herself, as I learned, had searched for me at around the same time that I was searching for her the first time around, at least. Um, So she was looking for some closure. She was looking to to get some kind of, some kind of connection back to me. Yeah. Yeah. Did she have any Uh, other kids? No, she didn't. Never did. Hmm. She did not. Yeah. Did she not have an interest in, in having children? I mean, was that a piece of letting you go? I think, well, there are, there are other factors at work. I think that, that she came to realize that, well, there were, there were, there were personal factors in her life that led her to think that, that she herself wouldn't be able to raise a child with the kind of care and attention that, that she would be able, that she would be able to give a child. And it has to do with, it has to do with personal, personal struggles, Gotcha. Mental health stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And before you go on, did she tell you, she told you your fa- your biological father's name? She and, did. And what was their relationship at the time? They were dating and then they weren't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my biological parents. Yeah. 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 Mine yeah. too. So, yeah. But anyway, I think, I think reading Ann Fessler's book, gave me a kind of a template for a narrative that I was comparing my mom's narrative against. And, and so I was really thinking of it from that framework. Like was she, to what extent was she coerced in making the decision to relinquish and what was her feeling about finding me again? And so there were elements that, that were kind of, that were kind of similar and elements that were a little bit different from some of the stories that I read in Tesla's book. So coming back to the reunion story, we, she and I drove over to my my aunt's house, and and then there were all of her surviving siblings: three sisters, um, a brother, and, and I met them all. And um, that's an out of body experience. <laughs> that was an out of body experience. Yeah. It was all happening in the span of a couple of hours. Were there any cousins? I do have a couple of cousins. One of one of whom I know. I've seen her several times um, at my aunt's house. And, you know, we're friends on Facebook. I have other co- cousins from another sibling whom I have not met. Yeah, my cousin was not present at this at this dinner. But uh, yeah, so what was going on in my mind as I'm sitting there with all of these people? The first thing that w- was struck me was just the genetic mirroring stuff mm-hmm. that, is, that I've been thinking so much about. Just the fact that I'm looking at these people and I'm saying, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I look like. I look, I, I have your nose and I have your eyes. And 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 then as we sat down to have dinner, there was more that began to come out. Like you may notice that I'm sitting here and I'm moving my hands in a certain way. Well, several of my mm-hmm. aunts and uncles move their hands in similar ways, yeah, yes. you know. And I I noticed that things that made that I I felt like I was able to, I was able to make them laugh with some of my stupid jokes. Now, of course we're all trying to be on our best behavior with each other. So maybe one can't read too much into those kinds of signals, but it just seemed like we shared a sense of humor, similar kinds of sensibilities. 
one thing that I really enjoyed noticing was that my, my aunt at whose home we were having this dinner, she has an advanced degree. She has a PhD, a, uh, a nursing PhD. She had some of her books for her academic life on the bookshelf, including several philosophy books and history books that I myself have read. And this was particularly striking to me because I didn't grow up in a house wh where there were any scholarly monographs lying around. Mm -hmm. That was no part of my, my family experience and my adoptive family growing up. And yeah, you, know? you went that way. You went that way as, as an adult. I did. Yeah. And, and then I was to discover as, as I learned more about my family that two of the siblings um, got PhDs. One, I believe it was a can't remember if now if it's a mathematics or physics PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, and then and then my aunt who has a PhD in psychiatric nursing, and then I learned that several of the others have postgraduate degrees, and one was an English teacher, uh, I think both at the college and and school level, uh, and so I, I I discovered that I'm in this family of nerds, um, scholars, <laughs> intellectuals, people, <laughs> intellectuals. I don't know, but I mean, you know, I'm 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 coming to the to their house and I've got a PhD too. And I'm just struck by this. You know, I don't, I, I, I think a lot about, uh, about what we share in virtue of, you know, our genetic kinship. And mm -hmm. obviously any adoptee thinks a lot about nat the nature and nurture question, but there were just so many signs to me at different levels, deeper or shallower levels from the shape of the face to the way someone laughs or gestures to just choices that people made in their lives that just resembled aspects of myself that it had a tremendous it just had a tremendous effect on my own on my own self image in the sense of really resolving mysteries about who I was being it's placed great. in that genetic context yeah that they were so open and and welcoming you into their life. And it's, that's not always the case. So right. you, re you refer to her as your mom. A lot of adoptees, myself included, maybe this is because my adoptive mom is still alive, but I distinguish the two, you know, yeah. birth mother and adoptive mother. And is this just, do you point. call her mom to her? I don't. I call her by her first name uh, and I call my adoptive father, dad. Yeah, I went. So kinship language is tricky for all of us adoptees. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, even even when we are just using terms to disambiguate, so that people know that we're talking about our mother who gave birth to us rather than the mother who raised us. Even the choice of terminology, even if it's just for the purpose of disambiguating, I've noticed can elicit some some controversies among adoptees. So, so you know, I've. I've heard adoptees say that the phrase that the phrase birth mother is maybe not to be preferred, maybe say first mother or natural mother, you know, these questions about um, what what the import of the phrase is and what what kind of connotations it, it carries. These are all fraught questions. So I yes, when in talking about my my uh, adoption reunion experience, I was referring to her as as my mom, and the reason why I did that is because I knew that in this context it was it was pretty clear which of my two moms I was I was referring to. But in a situation where it might not be clear, I would I would pro I would probably just resort to birth mom or adoptive mom. That's a very good point, Sarah brought up about the language because 
we all we all go through it. How am I going to distinguish this or say this? And right, yeah, yeah. So um, then you know after after that initial meeting in March of 2014, as I say, we really just kind of became a family in the sense that I just became a bunch of people's nephew and I became my, I became my birth mom's uh, son. Did you, you tell know, your dad about all your, your father about all this? So I am, I'm trying to remember how it unfolded. I actually think that I wrote, I reached out to two of his sisters. No, no, no. I mean, your adoptive father. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you. Oh, okay. Um, you are. Are you still on speaking terms? Do you talk to him? Are you close to him? I mean, my adoptive father. Well, we haven't. We haven't spoken in a while. So the the way I I decided to manage to manage this revelation because I I I had a suspicion that this news was going to be difficult mm. for him to take. And I didn't really know how it would be received by any other members of my adopted family. So my dad has two younger sisters, both of whom I felt very close to growing up, loved them dearly. And they were, again, just as, as was true of so many people in my adoptive family, really just, just very warm and loving to me, just embracing me as you know, fully a member of, of, of the family. I decided that I was, I was going to try to break it gently, as it were, by reaching out to them first. And I did that. And the loveliest thing happened, which I didn't expect and certainly wasn't counting on. They both told me that they were happy that I had found my birth mom. And they told me something else, which is that they had for a long time, I don't know how long, with among themselves and with their husbands had wondered whether I was going to search you know, whether I was going to take that step. So as I said, I wasn't expecting that response, but it was very encouraging. I may have, you know, I may have misjudged the level of acceptance in a way, because after I had those conversations with my two aunts, I had a conversation with my dad and I told him that I had found, I had found my birth mother and, you know, he was very, I mean, he was listening quite respectfully and he was, he was very, you know, sort of cool and almost formal about it. Just, you could just tell that he was listening quietly and maybe very, you know, very intently as I'm telling him, you know, this news. And I don't remember what it, what the context was, but I was talking maybe about how I was going to be taking my kids out to see my mom you know, in, in a couple of weeks or something, because at this point it had been a couple of years since the reunion, actually, I had kind of waited a while before even broaching this, this, this stuff with my adoptive family. And as I said, I kind of became an instant nephew and an instant part of the family. And we established a, a schedule whereby two or three times every year, I was driving out to my mom's town with my kids I was wondering um, if your kids knew them. Yeah. So they, yeah. So my children both have uh, really great relationships with, with my birth family and my uncle who lives in, not in Western New York state, but in, in Pennsylvania, you know, I've taken, I've taken my children out to see him and his wife there. And we've visited the Pennsylvania farm show and seen the butter sculpture. And, <laughs> you know, we've just been doing 
aunt and uncle and niece and nephew and family stuff together for a while at this point. So I'm on the phone and I'm telling my dad about some of this. And I think I maybe have casually said something like, um, so yeah, so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take, take the kids out to see my mom again. And then there was a, a moment's pause. And he said, I have to be honest. I never thought that I was, would ever hear you use that word for anyone other than your adoptive mom. And I could, I, you know, I, it was easy to tell that that was, that that was some, that was hurtful for him to mm-hmm. hear. But when we talk about how just the choice of language is very fraught for adoptees, that was just a very direct education in that. And that was the last convert. And this was, I want to say this was something like four or five years ago. Um, we had that conversation and I've talked to him since. I traveled to Alabama to be present at present with my grandmother, his his uh, mother, as she lay dying in a hospital. So yeah, I've seen him a couple, at least once in person since that conversation. But for me, it was it was you know at this point I had I had, my thinking had moved into a different in, in kind of to a different space with respect to adoption because now I was beginning to move into kind of the aggrieved phase. Where, and in particular, what I mean by aggrieved is I was beginning to feel angry that it took so long for this to happen, that I had to wait so long to get my original birth certificate. Now, obviously, given what I've told you, I could have done it much sooner than I did, but that's because, you know, because I didn't know the situation with adoption law in, in my, in the state of my adoption. But I, at that point, I was beginning to think about, you know, justice issues these decisions are being made for us putatively in our best interests, but we have no say in it. There are these other parties that are making these agreements that deprive us access to our identities, to our birth certificates, and we have no say in it. And we just have to be bound by an agreement that other people have made on our behalf as infants. And so I had been moving into that kind of, that kind of attitude. And I think that that brought out a little bit of a forthrightness and assertiveness in me. So that kind of knew when I was talking to my dad on the phone that I was doing something substantial by referring to my birth mother as mom, as my mom, you know, I kind of knew that it wasn't entirely innocent, but that I was in fact making uh, a point by it. And I judged him for his reaction, you know, and, and um, I still find, you know, I've, I, when I hear some stories, some including stories that um, some of your other guests on the podcast, you know, have related when I hear stories about the difficulties that adoptive families have in reconciling themselves to what their children are doing to make this part of their lives whole, there's still a part of me that just gets angry about it. Yeah. yeah. Do you think his reaction, I guess my thought was his reaction sounded less to do with him being your father and more to do with a, with a loyalty to his wife? I was thinking that. Yeah, that's a good question. Protectiveness. Of that's her. that was the gut feeling I yeah. got when you said that. When you yeah, yeah. That. I'm sure that was part of it. They were estranged. They, um, oh. they, they had separated when I was in my early teens, and I lived, I lived with my mom, my adoptive mom, and so they were, you know, in that way, out of each other's lives, or the, mm-hmm. the, okay. the family structure had had kind of broken, but. Yeah, as I already said, everybody in the family could tell just by the way my mom and I, and here 
I mean, my mom, my adoptive mom, the way my mom and I were with each other, how close a bond we had, that I'm sure that he was thinking about that and about the intensity of the affection that she felt for me when, when he said that to me. When, and that for him, for me to use the language that way was maybe a betrayal of him, but possibly primarily betrayal of her and of her. her. Mm-hmm. It's also yeah, and, sticky and uh, complicated. Very layered. It is. I I mean, I think that we have, just in talking about word choice, we've brought up a bunch of different moral questions that arise about whose feelings are to be respected and, and, and what the terms mean. It's just, it's, it's fascinating to me just how thorny it is. The other thing that I would want to say about my relationship with my mom, my adoptive mom, is that, as I said, I lost her when I was young and it took me as it happened, it was several years that passed before I allowed myself to take those baby steps toward finding something out about my birth mom. And then it was many years after that, before I actually took those little steps that changed me into the, you know, into what I am now. And I mentioned this on Twitter (laughs) because I tend to, I tend to, um, talk a lot about my sort of feelings about adoption and my own adoption experience on Twitter. And and something that I come back to over and over again is that if she were still here, I don't know if I would be talking to you right now. I don't know that I would have searched. I don't know if I would have reached out. There's no way for me to to know if if any of that would have happened. Certainly did. Next question, your birth father, your father. Yeah. Yeah. We know a little bit about it, but tell Yeah. Yeah. I'm still deciding how to proceed over the last couple of weeks. I've decided that I wanted to, as it were, make things right by my dad's, you know, I've already mentioned that I've haven't really talked with my adoptive father very much since that phone call. Cause for me, it it felt, I felt estranged by it. I was, I felt hurt by it. He felt hurt by it. And it's just taken me a while to, I think, bring myself back into a place where I want to, kind of reach out again, but I do. Something else that I decided that I want to do is to let my biological father know that I'm, that I exist and I'm all right. You know, there are, there, there are reasons why I suspect that maybe he's not going to want to form much of a relationship. I think that the circumstances of you know, the way that the relationship between him and my birth mother ended, um, the news of my pregnancy, I think that, that was very difficult for him. So, you know, he married and has two sons, my half brothers. I can easily imagine that, that from his perspective, after all, he didn't carry a child and bring it into the world. I can understand how it would be easier for a father generally just to compartmentalize this as a bad thing that happened. And now it's over. The child is gone. It's like the incriminating evidence has been destroyed and that maybe he would prefer to keep it that way. So I have to keep that in mind as a possibility as I debate how to reach out. And so the way that I've decided to do that is kind of following the advice of somebody that I heard from on Twitter is see whether I can get some DNA evidence. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I, I joined Ancestry.com uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to be submitting a DNA sample for the for the, the DNA Ancestry part of their uh, service. 
and see what shows up. See if any of uh, the members of his family tree show up as matches, because what I've been doing is I've been plotting out. I've been just spending a lot of time plotting out family trees, my biological family tree. At this point, I have good information. You know, just today, I learned the names of my paternal uh, grandparents. I saw that. You know, and uh, and so I know that I had had an uncle on my father's side who died um, about ten years ago. Uh, my father's only only sibling, and I have yet to figure out whether whether he had any children. So whether I might have more first cousins that I don't know about yet. That maybe that'll be what I do after after our conversation now. <laughs> what state are they in? Do you know Pennsylvania? Well, okay, so everyone, yeah, is Pennsylvania, that yeah, that's right. I have more. Oh, go ahead. I'm going through this with you, as you know, sort of like, you know, I've done the DNA, so I know I have that to say here I am who I am, but I haven't done it either. And I'm sort of circling the, (laughs) figuring out the best way to do this. It's very, you know. Did it uh, pull up matches for you? Yep, immediately. I knew his name already. And then, Yeah. yeah, and they're all there. And so it's, it was like immediate and he's not on Ancestry. Right. So were there maybe maybe more distant branches of your family who had created some trees and that's yeah, kind of not even so distant. You know, he's oh. one of many brothers and a lot of them are on there and the kids are on there. And I, I still haven't been able to figure out who's who to who, but a little bit. I know a few of the players. So it's that sort of <laughs> it's, An- ancestry is amazing. That was that was yeah. how I pieced together because my birth you mother did. was also adopted. It, you know, that, that was a big mystery to me until just maybe three years ago, four years yeah. ago when I found her side of the family. And it's, it's, I think I've said this, yes. but out of the, out of, out of the six kids of my biological grandmother, four of them gave up kids for adoption, which is pretty astounding. That is astounding. I mean, just statistically astounding. Anyway, you'll you'll probably be going down some rabbit holes on uh, ancestry once you. Yeah. I've been down some late night rabbit holes and texting yeah. Sarah late at night. Just plan on uh, many hours going yeah, through ancestry. Well, I have. I, I can see what a time suck it is. I've already. I've already <laughs> invested a lot of my time and energy into it. All and and just I love looking at people's family photos. Actually, yes, I always have, and not just my own family, but anybody's family photos. You know, there've been, there've been times when I've asked people, Hey, can, let's look at your family photo album. I'd love to see it <laughs> I, because I've, I have always been interested in, you know, within and across generation connections and resemblances. I love seeing mm-hmm. who looks like whom I've always been interested in that. Do you think, um, do you think that's an adoptee thing? Because I, when you're saying that, I'm like, I've had that too. And Sarah, we both like to look at photos and, oh, you know, that's, since I was little, I love to look at that. I think so. It's a vicarious experience of genetic mirroring that that we don't get to have. Yeah. Um, so and even if we, we don't see it. Yeah. And even if we don't understand that that's what's driving it, I I, I think that that's that's it, it's reasonable to think that's what's going. on. I think on. you're right. I used to stare at my brother when he would eat or do something, and then watch my dad and stare at them to watch. You know, and most people would say, "Oh, they look so much alike," and that's an obvious. But I would stare at them, fascinated how they would have that. Yeah. Like watch them for a long time. <laughs> when I met my birth mother and, and two of my sisters with her and they came to stay with my son, he was a baby at the time. And my ex, 
um, who actually you look exactly like. I just, oh my gosh, it's crazy. Isn't that crazy? My son's father, like, I'll have to send you a picture. You look just like him. At any rate, we, he was, he just sat there. David sat there. Like, he's like, there's four, four of you. (laughs) (laughs) We had the same gestures, not, we all nod our head, you know, just all these things. So it, it is pretty, it's, it's remarkable actually, when you don't have that and then you you don't have it, it It is, you 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 lack it and then you're older and wow. Yeah. I know that podcasting is is not a visual format, but I'm going to show you a picture that I have stared at for I don't know how many hours. But so this is um, I've got a picture here that depicts uh, my birth mother and me both at age 17. Oh, wow. And yep. um, it's the same face. <laughs> yeah. And I I saw that, you know, I grabbed I grabbed that yearbook photo from, you know, like classmates.com, I think. Yeah. And that happened before I I met her in person. And I just. Yeah, I was I was hypnotized by that photo, and yeah. I just kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it so much so that I, I yeah I framed it and it's on a, in a prominent place in the hallway by my room, and then I have another copy of that yearbook photo of her that's in my bedroom. Yeah, because to me it's just a yeah it's just a token. It's just it's a, it's a symbol of of a connection that feels so real to me. You know, I find it. I think it is really hard to, and I would love to know how you think about this, but I think it's hard to explain why those kind of blood connections are so important to us. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it isn't as important for other adoptees. I certainly don't want to generalize, but just feeling like, I mean, you know, just feeling connected to that family tree and sort of more broadly speaking in the whole kind of global and cosmic tree um, is so important that it's loss is something that, I mean, we, we didn't have it as, as, as children, as we're growing up, but it wasn't like something that was taken from us so much as it was, it was never present. And so we didn't, I think, have the language to articulate it. No. I mean, maybe some adoptees are more self-aware and will say things like, I, you know, I want to know who I look like, but I never actually said that, but I had these other indications that this was, I think in many respects in my life, that that this had an effect on my sense of identity. I was really interested in other people's family resemblances. I used to think that I was a kind of narcissist because I would stare at myself in the mirror. (laughs) And now I understand It doesn't mean you're not. (laughs) Yes. Well, Good old fashioned narcissism. Wow, I'm a hot guy. That could be part of the reason why I did it. But another part of it is just that I think I was, it was like I was looking at a puzzle. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm looking at this face. What is this face like? Who who is this face like? I mean, that inarticulate, inarticulate feeling was always there. And in a broader sense, you know, my sense of being separate from different, just, just different from everybody else in my yes. family mm-hmm. growing up. That was something that, that they emphasized in weird respects. Like I grew up in the deep South, but I never spoke with a pronounced Southern accent. Everybody else in the family did. Why? I had certain musical talents as it turned out. And it's, I grew up in a family that is not a musical family. 
you know, and then I, I discovered with my, um, with my birth family that there are artistically creative people. My, one of my aunts is a, is a very talented poet. My birth mom is a gifted visual artist and graphic designer. In fact, she mm. did that for a living uh, in her young adulthood, you know? And so, yeah, that's that sense of, of difference, which I think is very much rooted in these, in these genetic connections was that that rootedness wasn't there for me. And what it led to was this, this sense that maybe I don't have a self or I don't yes. have a, a, a fully, I have an opaque self that it's a black box at the center of me, because I think this is so important yet so hard to describe to people who don't experience it's, it. It's what very you- hard to describe it. I used to spend a lot of time in the East coast as a kid with my family, my adopted families, extended family, my aunts and uncles. And they were, they're really big into their genealogy and they had the family tree and everything. I always just felt like such a fish out of water. And I was very close to everybody. Love them all. I'm still close to them, but I am, I was always just different than, than everybody. And I had a brother that looks just like both my parents and acts like my parents. And, and I didn't have that and I'd be jealous of it, but you know, and they made me feel so loved and all that. I went through what you went through. Just, I was accepted and loved and, but I just felt like fish out of water. I mean, just, I'm always was a little bit different. Everybody went East to go to college. I went West, you know, I just was always, my dad used to call me his left coast daughter. So it was like just that kind of joke because everybody's over here. I'm over here, you know, just, and I couldn't, I didn't put my finger on it until we were doing this podcast, really how detrimental it was to growing up. Just kind of always feeling like you don't belong, but you know, you're there, but you don't belong. I, don't know I had a pretty extroverted personality as a young <laughs> person, but I never, again, you know, I don't know if you've listened to my story, but mine is so, mm-hmm. everything is so jumbled together. What, what, you know, what is all this stuff from? I would, you know, there were several abandonments in my life, initial relinquishment, then parent adoptive parents, divorce, and my mom leaving and and my dad remarrying and checking out. And, you know, there's so much that it's hard to always pinpoint. But I do know that that early on I felt, you know, and I and I remembered this tonight because before we had before we got on the on Zoom with you, I had been in a bit of a funky mood today. And I I put some AirPods in and I put yacht rock onto <laughs> Spotify and I, and I just, and then I had this, I remembered how much my entire life that has been my safe place mm-hmm. to put music in and, and escape from the rest of the world. And, and that was very, very early on, like as far back as I can remember back then it was a transistor radio with a one ear, pl- <laughs> like, I don't know why they couldn't figure out two at that time, but they didn't. Just um, the cord. Yeah. So anyway, yes, all those feelings. And I guess the way that I am able to articulate it now is that I never felt at home anywhere. I didn't feel home. And when I finally did meet my biological family and had those roots, I felt like other people and at home and accepted and not weird, you know, weird. I know in my family, I'm the weirdo. And I mean, really, they think I'm weird. <laughs> and we love it that way. Thank God. <laughs> so, yeah, everything that you're saying sounds 
familiar to me. Yeah. When, I mean, when you were talking about your uh, biological family, when you met them and you're looking around the table, when I yeah. met my biological family on my mom's side, she wasn't there obviously, but I just remember like I laughed really loud and then they all laughed really loud. Cause I was always the loud laugher. I still am obviously like sometimes on the podcast, we have to cut that. So I was like, Oh, like other people are loud and embarrassing too. You know, I just yeah. remember thinking, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really extraordinary. It's one, one respect in which I think it was detrimental to me growing up, not having that knowledge was that, so I mentioned, for example, that I uh, I had some musical talent, which I was hoping actually to develop into a musical career. And when I started college, I was a music major, but I, I was never sure whether whether fully to commit to it. And in in fact, I didn't commit to it, and I changed my course of study into something else after a year. And I think that my uncertainty over whether to commit to it was an uncertainty over whether whether I had it in me, like there's just this one thing that one thing that family history gives you, I think, is a little bit of a little bit more of a sense of maybe where you can go, what your potential is, and to have kind of have a model, either positive or negative, of where you can take certain things. And I don't know. I mean, the fact that my birth mom was able to make a living, like be prof- a professional in her creative field. I just think about what kind of influence that would have had on me in this mm-hmm. highly counterfactual wow, world where yeah. I was yeah. raised by her. Whereas, you know, I, I, as I say, the family that I grew up in was not a family in which, in, in which people, you know, pursued creative endeavors really. And so it left me kind of, there's a sense, again, I wouldn't have articulated this way back then when I was a teenager, no. but I think there was just this sense of, well, I don't, I don't really know what's in me. <laughs> I don't really know what, what, what my potential is and what my real strengths are. Same. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Trying on a lot of hats sometimes too. That right. Even fit. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So I think that is a loss. It's a loss. And then, yeah. And then the other thing about, about not feeling part of the, the tribe, you know, I was lucky enough to visit, lucky enough to visit Sicily uh, a couple of, a few years ago. And um, well, actually it was like 16 years ago now. And my adoptive family on my dad's side are um, descended from, from Sicilian immigrants. And so I had the privilege of visiting some of these hill towns that have had family names to them. Like, you know, I kind of recognize a lot of these names because they were last names of various parts of the extended family and friends of the family and so on. And it was really interesting, but yet I was acutely aware while I was looking at all these places that I didn't see these places as my ancestral. Right. Never felt like it just, I couldn't make, I I even kind of tried, I think, to feel that connection, but I just never did. I just felt like, oh, this is really interesting. I'm looking at these people's roots. That's how I have the most German name on the planet and I don't have any German in me. And, I, you know, growing up, it was so German in, in, yes. in the Midwest and I didn't, yeah, I didn't have a connection to it, but yeah. boy, those Irish. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has just been such a great conversation. I feel like we could talk for yes. hours. I just, you're so interesting and really want to follow up and hear what happens when you figure out how to reach out with your ongoing story. 
We need to update each other. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's in progress. And I think there's a sense in which reunion is always, um, for those of us who are uh, either fortunate or, or obviously it can be, obviously it can yes. be tragic. But, but even for those of us who are lucky enough to have good reunions, maybe in a sense it's provisional, or at least it's always in, in, in progress. My decision to appear on the podcast and talk with you was a step for me. Because now that I'm talking in a way that other people can hear, I don't know how it's going to be received by people in my bio family or adoptive family. And again, I think a lot of adoptees, you know, have that sense that, well, it's all provisional because we were, we were rejected once. And there's just that kind of inchoate feeling that, well, it could, it could happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's, it's terrifying that Sarah and I actually, you know, we're doing this together and it's a lot for us to put this out there because it's not what we normally do in that way. And we'll text each other. Like, I wonder if someone's going to get mad or, you know, we still have that. I mean, all this time, all this time later, you think, and no one's done anything yet or say anything, but we don't know. They could be not happy so right. on either side. I don't know. That's right. That's right. So speaking broadly, I feel like for us, as good as it is, as good as it feels, certainly for me, because I regard myself as one of the lucky adoptees, to have my bio family back as family, there is still a sense in which it's it's a it's a gap or a chasm that can never really fully be bridged. Yeah. And 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 that my relationship to both my families have these, yeah, have these kind of tenuous aspects to them, mm-hmm. um, reinforcing that sense. I think we all have as adoptees as kind of being loners. Yeah, yeah, cosmos. <laughs> Very much, yes, yes. The rejection thing is a big. It's a big fear deep yeah. down in all of us. I, th- I think I'm just more comfortable solo in life. I don't know. I don't mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I do. <laughs> Yes, with my little headphones and <laughs> some yacht rock, <laughs> little Lionel Richie. We're gonna have to play some yacht rock later for this episode. Well, wow. obviously, we'll be in touch, Tony. We'll see you on Twitter, and we'll stay in touch. And and please thank you for do update on. us. Yeah, and be thanks for yeah, thanks for doing brave. this and to to sharing all of this with us. Really appreciate it. I can't thank you enough for inviting me on. It was lovely to talk to you. You can find out more about what happens in this story because I'm not at this point, you know, you said something about being at a certain age where you kind of don't care. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of actually, there. I think I say, don't give a don't fuck. Give a I believe you said that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that the, those were your words. Yes. But yes. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously at this point, I've put a lot of myself out there in the world yeah. and I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, well, I, I really appreciate it. You're very Me candid too. and honest and vulnerable. And it's, it's really great to, to keep, you're like one of my favorite Twitter people. Yes. So and really we'll help other it. people too. There was a young girl today on Twitter who was nervous. And, and I said, you know, it helps to have the age thing. You just don't care as much. Yeah. And your voice is going to help so many. I do hope so. Yeah. And it's touching to know that, that we can, we can reach people. All right. Well, thank you. Thank Tony. you. We'll thank talk you so to you much. Soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. That was great. I loved having his perspective and his introspection and, and thoughtfulness and just the way in which he speaks and thinks through things. Deep thinker. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I like how he really researches and delves into things too. Gets to know the laws or the different things or how 
we might feel or someone else might feel and really explore them and learn the reasons and causalities. I mean, if, if anyone wants to follow me, it's wonderful to, to listen yes, to. If you're on, on Twitter. Well, you can find him by his name. I think, yeah. I think that's how I found him. Yeah. You Tony Corzentino, which will be in our liner notes on the yes. podcast. So. so this is a great one, Sarah. What do we say? We say another great episode. Another great episode. In the books. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me bye see you next time